Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. The way healthcare is delivered will forever be transformed. Leading into 2020, there's already strong interest from the Australian investment community regarding health tech solutions. Now, moving into our new normal world, the use of technology in delivering better patient outcomes is no longer a novel idea. It's mission critical for Australia and the rest of the world. My name's Peter Birch, and I'm the host of the Talking Health Tech podcast. Today, I'll be hosting a panel discussion with representatives from three top venture capital firms in Australia who all have experience and interest in investing in health technology. We're going to get their perspective on health tech in Australia this year and beyond. So going around the room, I'm joined by Nikki Savak, co-founder and partner of Blackbird Ventures, Dan Krasnerstein, partner at Square Peg Capital, and Jackie, or Jax, Vollens, principal at Airtree Ventures. We've got attendees who are here live tuning into this webinar and those people can interact with this session, filling out a poll, which they're doing now, but there's also opportunity for chat and Q&A. And if you're feeling really adventurous, we can bring you on live and ask a question during the session as well. Uh, for those who have missed the live session and want to re all revisit uh, some of the content that we've covered, the recording of this webinar will be available to view, but also the audio from this session will be converted into an episode of the Talking Health Tech podcast and released in a few weeks, which you can check out at talkinghealthtech.com. So let's get started with some intros. We'll go around the room and while we do that, you've got another couple of minutes to complete the poll as those that are arriving. But uh, Nikki, if I can start with you, if you can just give an introduction of yourself, your firm, and also some of the health tech companies that are in your portfolio today. Sure thing. And thank you for having me. We co-founded Blackbird eight years ago um, to supercharge Australia and now New Zealand's um, most ambitious founders. So it's a generalist investment firm. We used to say that we did not invest in um, health tech companies. However, I would say very quickly, the sort of developments in artificial intelligence in particular and what it was suited to processing images like computers can process text meant that healthcare became very sort of relevant. And so particularly over the last couple of years, we've invested heavily into health tech. Uh, some of the companies we have led the first rounds of, Harrison AI, C-Mode, Vexev, Eucalyptus is a more a consumer healthcare sort of stable of brands and experiences. But that sort of prompt, I think, of AI has led us to you know spend a lot of time in the area in the last couple of years. And then something that's not health, but I think is a very important trend is the use cases of biology outside of healthcare. So as a biologist, you could dedicate your life to healthcare. Now with those skills, you can dedicate yourself to solving other problems um, outside of healthcare. So lab-grown meat or cultured meat is a great example of biologists producing food, not for a healthcare purpose, but from a um, environmental purpose. And then you know, all the way to, we have led a seed round of a Melbourne company called Cortical Labs, that is culturing a mouse brain to function as a computer. So again, biology, but nothing to do with healthcare. And so I think as well as healthcare, the more general sort of use of biology and solving all these other different problems is, is another quite exciting development. We love to invest right at the beginning. We love to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars. We love to invest before revenue, before a product, just at the idea stage. If things do work out, we love to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in a company. We uh, led the seed round of Canva, first investing 250K. We've invested nearly two hundred million dollars just into Canva. And so we are about the most ambitious companies and hopefully to be able to invest in those companies all through their life and for those companies to turn out to be the most valuable companies in Australia and New Zealand. Fantastic. Good intro and good insight on what you do within health and broadly as well. Jax, over to you and Airtree. 
I'm a principal on the investment team at Airtree. We invest early stage in technology across a whole wide range of sectors, but health is an area of particular love and focus for us. We invested kind of very early on in healthcare with our our investment early into HotDoc, which was, uh, I guess, five years ago now. And we've continued to invest in more companies like MetaOptima, which we know each other very closely well um, from, as well as uh, Inventia. I think we have loved healthcare investing for a long time. I think the time is now. Um, I think, you know, a lot has changed in the last six months in terms of clinician readiness to adopt healthcare solutions and particularly readiness to adopt healthcare outside of the hospital. And so I think we're pretty excited about what comes next. And we're excited to kind of invest at those earliest stages as well, the way Nikki mentioned, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into your first round. I think that's where we'd love to come in. Perfect. Thank you. And Dan, tell us a bit more about yourself and SquarePix. Sure thing. Thanks again for having us. Uh, really excited to, to be here. A lot of similarities to the Blackbird story. Um, SquarePix also started about eight years ago doing early stage investing. The differences there, we invest across Australia, Southeast Asia and Israel. There are sort of three core geographies. Um, Israel's where I'm based at the minute. I've been over here for the last six years, uh, driving driving the Israel uh, operation, actually about to head back to Australia. I would also describe us as a, as a journalist fund, uh, across a, you know, investing across a range of industries with health tech becoming a sort of growing area of interest for us. We made four investments in the space or even in the last 18 months across each of our geographies. So one in Australia in a business called Health Match, accelerating medical research by linking um, patients with clinical trials. ADOC in Israel, which is an AI for radiology. Uh, as Nikki said, computer vision, the rise of AI and how that can help. And then a business in Southeast Asia called Doctor Anywhere, which is really sort of a fully integrated care delivery platform, probably Southeast Asia's leading digital health provider, really starts with telehealth at the core, but then providing all services around that from prescription to payment and to air care management. And so, yeah, sort of the healthcare is becoming a, a rising interest for us as various forms of, I guess, uh, you know, AI one, direct-to-consumer, uh, areas with, with direct-to-consumer, uh, different forms of diagnosis, discovery, uh, are really sort of growing areas where I think as technology investors and, and understanding the technology side more so than necessarily the medical or life science side, that technology component becoming a key factor in what's driving the health outcomes and why we think it's a super interesting and exciting place to be. Very cool. Thank you. And that's a great overview on where everyone comes from on the panel. So that helps lay the land. What I will do, I will end this poll that's been out there and people had a bit of time and I will share the results with everyone so we can see too. Hopefully that should come up just out of interest sake there in terms of attendees. So we've got most people who are attending are managers in the space, but a good mix as well of investors and clinicians, probably about over 50% identify as, as managers are part of the options there. We've got your interest in health, tech and VCs. Majority of respondents are companies who are currently or will be seeking investment in the near future, but there's also quite a few, uh, so that's 46% of respondents are in that category and quite a few, 30% are, are just working in the industry and want to learn more, which is a very common theme. Generally, so it's a great space for edutainment as we found on the podcast. So I hope that we can edutain in this session. And lastly, um, what do you find the most exciting emerging trend development within healthcare and health tech at the moment? And a resounding 71% have said AI and ML or artificial intelligence and machine learning, which very much resonates with what the panelists were talking about even just in their intros. And we can dig into that in a little bit more, but also cloud and genomics look quite interesting too. No one cares about 3D printing. It's not that no one cares about 3D printing. It's just not front of mind when those options or those other options present. So that's fantastic. All right, we will pop that aside.
and we can delve into any of that a bit later if we need to. But look, what I wanted to do is just kind of to get a, a panelist perspective on venture capital's role generally in a broad sense in the healthcare ecosystem, other than just providing funds and helping an idea get off the ground, if you had to describe what a VC's role was within the healthcare ecosystem, how would you describe it? So Jax, because we know each other so well, you get to be the first one that kicks things off. How would you respond to that one? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, our job is to provide you with funding, to provide you with connections where possible, whether that's for BD or for hiring. I mean, at Airtree, we have a, a full-time recruiter on staff whose sole job is to help our, our companies scale their teams, which we can do both from the tech side and also from the healthcare side more recently. And I think also to kind of help you see around corners a bit, we've been talking to hundreds of companies in a similar position and, and watching the challenges as they try and scale both from a technology perspective, regulatory, go to market within healthcare. And hopefully we can give some ideas around potential areas to think about or people to speak to ahead of time so that you don't kind of make the same mistakes others have made in the past. Got it. I understand. Dan, would you have anything else to add to that description? I think a lot of similarities. I mean, I think you're asking the question specifically around healthcare and, and so some of the things Jack was talking around, around understanding regulation or understanding the complexity of the healthcare system, depending on which market you're in and understanding, you know, the differences between who's paying, who's receiving the service, but otherwise generally in terms of, you know, how VCs can play a role. I think we like to say that our success is driven by the success of the founders that we're backing. We're never going to be making decisions for them. We're never going to be telling them what to do. Our job is to give them advice, to open their blinkers a little bit. Founders are often super, super focused. I think the, the perspective a VC has is, is a lot broader, either within the industry or just bringing learnings in from other industries. And so, you know, we see our role as dropping those pieces of information in and, and widening the lens that the founder has or the management team has to make their decisions. And then, yeah, as, as to specific healthcare, sort of touched on some of those points. Totally. And on that point too, where you talked about just understanding the landscape in a broad sense, just thinking about even just the term health tech and that can... There can be quite a specific definition of it, but also it broadens out, particularly more recently as other areas like med tech and life sciences, digital health, biotech, everything's kind of like the, the edges are blurring a little bit. So Nikki, for yourself, how would you kind of describe or delineate the differences between say just a pure health tech company or VC and those that are more like a life science approach? And what's the difference and is, is it important to differentiate the two? I think it is. Um, health tech is a sort of ever-increasing universe of companies, whereas sort of I would categorize life sciences as medical devices or drug development, or it had a very sort of prescribed journey through to commercialization that was very different to a software company where companies operating within the health industry look more like software companies uh, in terms of these rapidly iterating products. Can you achieve something within 18 months with a few million dollars? Are most of the team software engineers or all of these sort of markers that make it look like a software company rather than a drug development company. I would also say, obviously with health, there's a regulatory aspect and particularly with traditional life sciences, the regulatory aspect is to grow and create the proof. So where you have to run a trial, gather participants, you know, go through the different phases. I think one particularly interesting change with the healthcare world in recent years is the ability of software to be tested against retrospective data. So you don't need to go out and recruit people. You don't need to wait to see if they live or die. You can run the algorithms and, and the diagnostics on retrospective data. So that cuts out years of time there. So 
I think the lines are blurring. I would also say that the software venture world has sort of rushed into this type of investing where it's more likely that a software venture firm is funding medical AI companies or a newer crop of healthcare companies than life science venture firms, which I think have been a little bit slower to embrace this new type of half healthcare, half software firm. Mm. And Jackie, are you finding the same thing from what you've seen and the view from Airtree? Yeah, very similar. I think um, kind of as Nikki said, I think that life sciences VCs are traditionally taking uh, regulatory risk and tech VCs would be taking market risk. Mm. Um, so the life sciences VCs would often probably sell quite soon after uh, regulatory approval to a larger company, whereas what we love to do is, is kind of back a company early on and then see them scale an IPO one day. And I think the worlds are converging in a way in which companies like tech-focused companies in healthcare can emerge, usually have relatively low regulatory burdens, whether that's uh, none or maybe you're, you're a class one medical device, and you can kind of get to market within 12 months and then start kind of scaling that go-to-market in a way that we have more experience with. And so with that go-to-market strategy then, doubling down on that a little bit, I mean, I guess getting that right with any organization is obviously critical, but within health, health technology, there's additional challenges that can be faced. Like where do you find that health tech companies, say, get it wrong in the early stages of launching their product to market? I think it really is. It's just kind of what Dan was mentioning earlier around who's the payer, who's the provider, and who's the patient, and how do those people interact? So kind of understanding very early on, um, I guess, that those two elements. So your regulatory burden, how what are the pathways that you need to take and how are you going to get set up for uh, success from the earlier stages to make sure that you're building your software in a way that is going to fulfill those regulatory requirements over time? And then how are you going to position your product and collect the right data early on to be able to get someone to pay for it and then be able to manage the change management for someone to actually deliver that care, whether that's someone in a hospital or if you're a consumer wellness in the way that eucalyptus is, you know, you could be going direct to consumer. Hmm. Interesting. And Dan, continuing on from that, are you finding similar things and similar perspective in relation to the go-to-market strategy and the challenges? Absolutely. Reiterate some of the things Jack said. And then as opposed to just repeating, I think some, some things to add would be Two things. One is sort of really understanding who the user of the software or whatever the solution is that you're providing and understanding, particularly if it's in, you know, frontline care or it's going to be doctors, you know, using the service, understanding how they operate today and understanding their workflows and their operating methods. So getting that product right so that it sort of fits seamlessly with how those users are operating today. We've seen that particularly with a business like uh, like ADOC. There's a lot of AI for radiology players in the market. ADOC weren't the first to market. These businesses are as good as their AI teams are and as good as their algorithms are, the reality is they're not differentiated by their algorithms. You know, once they're at 99.9% accuracy, all of them are. Mm. And where I think these guys have done such a good job and been able to get the market so well is understanding the workflow of the radiologist and finding a solution that was, was seamless for them so that they're able to adopt it easily and, and be happy working with it. So I think understanding that point is really important. And then I think the elephant in the room or, or the taboo point that sometimes people don't want to talk about is that it's not always about patient outcomes and as, as much as humans as we'd love to just believe that if you're providing a solution that's going to improve patient outcomes that the hospital is going to buy it you know hospitals are businesses as well and so there needs to be an ROI for the hospital and they need to work out I, I think as the business it's incumbent upon you to be able to prove to the if you are going to a hospital or, or whoever whoever the provider is where's the value above patient care is it increased revenue that you can get through different treatment models is it uh, reducing your top base somewhere along the line and so, you know, that's a, it's a bit of a touchy subject, obviously, but just patient outcomes, unfortunately, isn't always, uh, isn't always enough. 
Yeah, totally. And I think every health tech company, most health tech companies are, you know, commercialized in some way to be able to scale and deliver what they do and provide a service and, and are paid for that. So continue on from that, Nikki. Thinking from a health tech vendor's perspective, particularly within healthcare, not just from go to market, but just general sales cycles can be much longer within healthcare, especially if you're selling to enterprise or on a hospital level. Do you find across health tech, and typically, again, I could be wrong, but thinking of VCs or uh, just generally raising funds, you would expect fast growth and a fast paced company. And, and normally putting fast paced growth investment and health together is normally not the best match. But do you find that that's the case or is there some kind of paradigm that gets unlocked or how should kind of these companies approach these opportunities and what have you found? So I think selling healthcare to healthcare providers is ugly compared to selling software to software developers. So it's not good. It's not attractive. It's worse than other areas of people selling software. So to acknowledge that, I think two crucial elements um, have changed. And one is a lot of healthcare providers have private equity ownership. So radiology clinics, cancer cares, other kind of medical imaging have largely been swept up by the big PE firms, KKR, Pamira, sort of the list goes on around the world. And so they are very focused on operationally improving those companies over a two-year period or three-year period and then cycle it on to the next private equity buyer. And so there is a real motivation behind um, private equity ownership of healthcare to improve productivity. So I think obviously the dream is that you know, less people die and computers help save lives. However, I think the initial steps in the go-to-market are how can we make all of these healthcare professionals much more productive and how can they see more patients? How can they do more um, scans and, and so on and so forth? So I think in the beginning, to be able to demonstrate a productivity improvement as much as obviously you're delivering a better service as well, but that sort of first productivity element of they are sort of unscalable local businesses. There is so many sort of, it's a shop with a machine and you need to be able to get more scans out of the machine per day to be able to grow the business. And so I think a lot of the success or early success that we've seen, Harrison AI in particular, look at some of the things that they've done with Virtus Health and um, mm -hmm. iMed. I think they've really tapped into that. So to C-Mode as all of their initial customers were motivated, I think through that productivity element as much as the overall aim of better outcomes. Yeah, no, totally. And I might throw back to Dan for a second. So on from there, thinking from a vendor's perspective, if they've got a looking to raise funds, you know, looking at the poll that we ran earlier, there was quite a few of the attendees today, their companies either currently or will be seeking investment in the near future. So nearly half of the attendees have, have suggested that they will be doing that. We're in the year 2020 right now, and there's been one or two challenges that everyone has faced. So what is it like from the VC's perspective, raising funds for a health tech company? We'll go around and ask all three this one, I think, but we'll start with you, Dan. From your side, how have things been in that environment for a health tech company raising funds in 2020? Feels like we've been in 2020 for about 20 years. But um, <laughs> so, um, uh, look, I, I think obviously, you know, when, when the pandemic hit uh, at, at, you know, earlier in the year, there were a couple of months where sort of everyone just, you know, took a deep breath and sort of sharp inhale and thought, you know, what on earth is going to happen here? And there were probably a few months there where, where things were harder for companies to raise money. I think the reality is, if anything, what this pandemic has done is it had a massive, massive increase in, in, in the online of everything. So just this, the shifts we've seen to, to digital have been, you know, literally decade-long shifts have, have occurred in, in periods of two or three months. You, you know, you've obviously seen that probably most starkly in e-commerce, uh, but but also in areas of healthcare. I mean, if you look at telehealth consults to Australia, the, the numbers have just gone through the roof, obviously, over, over the last period. 
time. So, you know, I think in terms of appetite of investors to, to continue to invest is, is unchanged, potentially even increased as, as we've seen these trends, we've seen these trends unfold and the problems, the, the new problems that are that have arisen that come out of a pandemic like this and, and you know, entrepreneurs thinking about ways to solve these challenges and, and have also accelerated. So from my perspective, I'd say as healthy as ever, both in Australia, but again, kind of interested in, in, in Jack and Nikki's view, but certainly around the world, I, I would say it's certainly no harder and potentially even easier at the minute to, to raise capital for, for digital businesses in general, including health. Got it. Okay, Dan, Jackie, did you want to follow on from your perspective? Yeah, I, I'd agree with Dan. I think um, I think there's kind of, there's been a slow increase over, over a number of years in um, the number of investors, uh, particularly from the tech side, willing to invest in healthcare companies. Um, and the, I guess, evolution of the development of tech within uh, clinical settings. So, you know, people have EMRs today, which makes everything much easier. Um, and I think there's then the COVID effect, which is um, there's been a huge pull for certain elements of, of health tech, which would be things like telemedicine. There's also been a kind of market readiness um, acceleration, I think, in for, for other aspects, which would be Things like um, anything that enables care outside of the home, I think, you know, remote patient monitoring, um, areas like that where potentially providers and payers wouldn't have been as ready to um, prescribe or reimburse um, for those types of, of um, technologies or devices. I think probably the market is readier now. Um, obviously, over the kind of six-month period, unless you were in that pull bucket, um, you probably your go-to-market slowed down a bit, but seems to be coming back now. And I would say, as Dan said, I think probably there's there's never been a better time as a early-stage health tech company to raise. That's reassuring. That's good. Nikki, did you want to add any thoughts from your side? No, a triple jackpot of moved online, increased sort of possibilities in healthcare with AI, lots of money in Australia now. It's never been better. Yeah, perfect. We so need to find something, something we disagree on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't know. Do, do we need to? We'll see how we go. But look, just thinking broadly then, so health tech or otherwise, you know, we've touched on some of the things that your firms might look for, but what makes, just to really focus on the subject for a second, what makes an interesting investment opportunity for your firm to consider? And, or, or I guess from, from the other side, if, if I was an aspiring or, or a health tech company or any company looking for venture capital, what should they be aspiring to be? So Dan, did you want to kick things off? Yeah, I mean, I think in in a broad sense, it comes down to three pretty big questions, and obviously that's a lot of things that sit under that. But what is it about this team that we think is exceptional? Why this problem is the you know how, how large is the problem? Why is it worth solving? And why now? What makes now the right time to, to solve this problem? And, and and as I said, there's there's a lot of things that fit under each of those things. But you know, I think we're looking for passionate, driven, hungry humble and amazing founders that are going out and solve problems that we think can be incredibly large. That's the nutshell, I think, what, what all of us what, what all of us are doing. Uh, we're looking for people that can change the world at the end of the day. In terms of healthcare specifically, I think it's the same, it's the same bunch of questions and you know there, there's some other it's the same high level questions. There's other things that sit under that and, and we've touched on some of them around how does that change go to market? How does that change timing? What does that do? What we how do you think about it from a regulation perspective? But 
you know, I think what's been particularly interesting, and we've all touched on this on, on the healthcare side, but how those lines are blurring and how that's changing over time. I think Nikki said at the start, you know, a few years ago, they would, would have said they don't do healthcare investing, and, and that's changed dramatically. You know, I think we've had a similar approach at Square Peg where we've said there's some line, where, where does that line end between going from a software investment into the healthcare space versus being more of a medical investment? And that line just keeps shifting. So, you know, a little while ago, we would have said, Hey, health match is really easy for us. That's matching clinical trials and patients. That seems pretty easy. And then, you know, ADOC makes a lot of sense. That's AI being applied to radiology scans. And so, you know, we can get our heads around that. And then as we, as we go on, and but, but, you know, potentially we would have said, oh, but drug discovery, that's real pharma stuff. But actually, as, as that changes, you know, AI applied to drug discovery is an area we're, we're spending a lot of time on recently. And so, you know, I think just that line keeps blurring between healthcare specific and what's relevant there. But... But again, to come back to a theme, size of problem, and, and why now is, is some of the key things we, we think about. Got it. And so to take a different angle on that, Nikki, from your side, from Blackbird's perspective, are there, given the shift over the last couple of years and now an interest in healthcare, health tech, are there areas that you're proactively looking for in particular? You know, you touched on AI before, but maybe just to get into any other bigger problems to solve within healthcare or health tech more broadly that can be addressed that right now you're searching for, or are you in a position of like just keeping an eye out what's in the market and just jumping on anything that might be of interest? I think particularly AI, and um, as Dan mentioned, it's not just diagnosis, it's discovering drugs. It's, I think, synthetic biology and fermentation, like that being a game changer for a lot of problems to be solved and a lot of industrial production, like making cement in a different way or making, um, uh, there's all of these, you know, fascinating sort of use cases of biology outside of healthcare that I'm fascinated by. I think in the end, as a venture capitalist, you are the student, not the teacher. You want to learn and you want to be, as much as you can say, you want to invest in X, Y, or Z. It's always the founder that comes through the door and just wows you with with a, a vision and uh, a mission that you had never thought of previously. And so I think just being open to that, again, raw ambition and what do we look for of your original question. The only thing I would say to everyone on this call is to be ambitious. I think there's this Australianness of um, if I halve my ambition, I'll double my chances. But I want to say if you halve your ambition, you'll halve your chances. If you are more ambitious, you are more likely to attract great people. You're more likely to attract great investors and you're more likely to get partners to sign on quickly and you're more likely to get regulatory approval quickly and whatever it might be, ambition is actually a, a honeypot or a network effect. And so the problem or the heartbreaking sort of sadness is when I see entrepreneurs sort of, they have it in them, but they sort of present it in this unambitious way of, you know, that that's too ambitious. And what we want to do is this to make it seem more realistic, where actually it's the opposite. It's more unrealistic if you do something less ambitious. And part of that is uh, finding people who, who are doing their life's work. Like, you know, they want to work on this for many decades to come. And, you know, those are the sorts of stories that we'd love to be involved in. That's amazing. That's a great, um, it's a great analogy and something to aspire to. It's very Australian to take the blase approach or, or try and dumb things down and uh, under promise over deliver. Yes, I agree. Usually that then waters things down generally. Jackie, from your side specifically, are there things that you're like on the hunt for at the moment that relate to health broadly or anything else in relation to that? very much um, in agreement with Nikki that the kind of the best founders are, are kind of come to you with ideas that you can never have even imagined. Mm. Um, and so kind of the door is always open in that respect. I think some areas that I'm particularly very interested in around kind of chronic care management, I think the path has been trodden now by a number of companies, particularly in the US, that early kind of getting go to market right in chronic care management. And I think there's a lot that can be learned 
and still a, a huge number of problems to solve in that area. And so I think that's pretty exciting. I think anything around remote patient monitoring, as I mentioned, I think things around value-based care and particularly if you can fit a piece of technology into a why now around alternative payment models or outcome measurement, then I think that's pretty exciting too. Fantastic. I'm going to pause there for a second and just open up for anyone to, I can see a couple of questions have come in the Q&A and some of them are longer and I'm awful at reading something else and talking at the same time. So I'm going to find a way to distract me so I can read those questions and throw to the guys in a second. But so I encourage anyone else to, to write their questions or one like, you know, vote up those that are in there as well. If you were, if you want that question asked, just click on the Q&A section down the bottom there. That's great. So I can see some things happening there. Good one. While that's happening, I'll just put that aside for a second. From a practical advice perspective, we talked a little bit about big picture and what to aspire to. When it comes down to it, if there's you know th those passionate founders or those looking for uh, investment, again, maybe even half of the attendees here are coming from that avenue. What would be the next step for them? Like, What would be your advice to the panel, to the early stage startup or health tech company looking to raise funds? Where do you start in terms of engaging with you guys? So we might start with Dan and then go around the room. Sure. I mean, Jack just said the door is open. I think that's going to, you're going to get the same answer from, from all of us. Australia is a pretty small industry. It's not hard to find who we are. Um, just, just come and bump us anywhere. But, you know, that's that, that sort of the knock on the door. Uh, I think the, the thing I would encourage all founders looking for investment anywhere is just think about the right investor for your business. You know, I think one of the key things is finding investors that are aligned with you on the vision that you're, you're going out to achieve, how you're going to do that how you're going to build your team, how you're going to scale, where you're going to focus. Funnily enough, we were talking about this internally just the other day. You know, in the choice between a dumb investor that is incredibly aligned and a smart investor that is very misaligned, I would pick the dumb investor that, that's aligned. Now, hopefully, you're going to find a smart investor that's aligned. But just sort of to illustrate the point, that, that misalignment between between founders and investors is just always a, always a recipe for disaster. Things are going to start rosy and very quickly, you're going to lead down different paths. So speak to speak to companies that those investors have invested in, do your work, find out what motivates them, find out what drives them, find out how they react to different situations, and then find a partner that you think is going to share the same values and vision with you on your journey because it's a long journey. So that's, it's critical to set it up right. Perfect. There was a dumb VC joke that I had in there, but we, we can move on from that one. Um, Nikki, did you have anything else to add to that one? No, I don't think so. Um, I noticed in the questions, there's sort of a debate around the definition of seed funding. I can say that every healthcare investment we've made is pre-revenue, pre-product, and nearly, I would say, every investment we've made in the last couple of years is pre-revenue, pre-product. So certainly people do have preferences for what stage they might come in at, but I would sort of challenge that in Australia, uh, there are a whole host of funds that are happy to invest at the idea stage. Perfect. And Nikki, you can keep on because there's another question for you specifically. How does Blackbird think about its global from day one investment mandate in sectors like healthcare where go-to-market and regulatory requirements can require a country-by-country -country approach? Yes, excellent question. I would say, um, so Blackbird invests in companies that can be global from day one. That has meant we have missed every single fintech company in Australia. So we haven't invested in any fintech because I always find it useful to sort of describe in what we haven't done versus what we have done. I think the lesson we took away from that was original ideas. So plenty of like marketplace lenders or taking sort of concepts that have worked elsewhere in the world and making them work regionally. I don't think we'd ever do that still. I think the interesting example of afterpay of original idea and clearly sort of a, an ambition to you know win the gold medal in the Olympics, not win the local sporting competition. And so with healthcare, it's still through that same 
same lens. Yes, it's not global from day one in terms of credit card purchases from you know workers in enterprises, but it still should be highly original. The person wants to be the best in the world, not the best in Australia. The regulatory approval process um, certainly does you know require a country by country base uh, basis expansion. However, even that. It's, it's not a sort of start from square one in each different country as you tend to get the FDA and CE in particular. The other ones sort of do fall like dominoes quite quickly. And so I would just say it doesn't fit perfectly into that global from day one thesis, but for ambitious people, for original ideas, we're not going to discount them. Got it, got it. And, and I'm going to throw to Andrew's question. Andrew Walker's written a question here and Dan, I'll, I'll let you speak to that. It's, it's around changing regulations. So the question is with the changing regulations around software as a medical device... Do you see the increasing approval requirements as a reason to avoid making too many medical claims for tech products to avoid the approval process or an advantageous way to gain market access and product protection? That is a complicated question. I'm not sure I even follow exactly where we're going here. I think that um, it's almost like a strategic element around regular. It's an interesting way to approach regulatory, I guess, in determining like the, if, if I've interpreted it correctly, it's given that it's becoming it will become increasingly difficult for software to be regulated with the TGA coming with software as a medical device and other regulatory requirements and that's only going to get more uh, I guess complex and involved by having more medical claim or, or, or clinical claim or the ability to diagnose and other kind of capability the more feature and functionality it has the more it's going to be need to be regulated so I guess how far do you over index on it if becoming too regulated means you're unable to innovate and scale then where should we be approaching it if I've ta- if I've understood that correctly Yes, I mean, I sort of unpick this in, in two ways. Um, you know, certainly, certainly if you're, if you're going out with a claim of, you know, full diagnosis as opposed to sort of assistance, um, it, clearly the assistance is much easier to do and much easier to assault a prop than, than full diagnosis and, you know, partnership with human much easier to, to, to prop than, you know, full, fully automated. I actually think it's not necessarily true that regulation is, is going to get harder, harder and harder. And if you look at, Particularly, the FDA uh, over the last probably 24 months have had a very significant push into AI and how they can reduce the barriers for regulatory approval for AI product. Uh, you know, Nikki was talking about before being able to do retrospective studies, and so you know, it's very easy again take a image recognition or any kind of AI over over any medical data and being able to go to the FDA and say, hey, look, I've I run this over the last five years data, and here's the output, and you know, we can calibrate that birth outcome. These things are going to get. I suspect these things are going to get easier and harder. Now, obviously, that's going to lead to more and more entrepreneurs trying to trying to tackle the problem, which is going to you know clog the the you know potential threats kind of like for the for the regulators to feed through them. But I think my sense is regulation is going to get better. It's going to get easier over time, not harder. And so, yeah, I would say that's, that's the trend rather than the other way. It just really is like a completely underestimated reversal. You know, if you think about all of the things that the Donald Trump government has done well, and it's a short list, but one of them is the FDA has completely changed its culture, completely changed the way it works. And I think that even as an unsaid sort of driver of a lot of investment activity, the FDA is getting a lot friendlier and a lot better than it was four years ago. Interesting. And Jackie, you can stage these things. So you can start with diagnostic support, get to market that way, and then over time, put in your application to become a diagnostic tool. I think you don't have to get it all done straight away. You can kind of stage your progression. 
great advice all around. Hey, I'm going to stick with you, Jackie, for this one from Lynette. Uh, Lynette Fong's asked, she's happy about the being able to knock on the door of VC, so that's great. And generally, it's, it's a good question. Those that have an idea at an early stage, generally wanting to have a chat, should they be working out equity, et cetera, beforehand within themselves before they come and have a chat with you? It sounds like a question of when should we start speaking to VCs when we've got an idea? Should we put everything together first and then come with you or should we speak to you at the very start? I would have a decent idea of the unique insight you have into the market and where you want to start in terms of entering that market. So what the first product could be. And I think have a think about the questions you're likely to get asked and have an idea of what you're thinking you might do about things like go to market or regulatory or who pays or who delivers care. And, And you don't need to have the answers. You almost just need to have the questions. If you come to us with just an idea, but that idea is as a unique insight and you're asking the right questions, I think, you know, we're likely to want to learn more. Excellent. And did Nikki or Dan, did you have anything else to add to that? Would you just resonate Jackie's point? None of us is scary, hopefully. So I think it's okay, particularly earlier founders that just want to sort of batter out some ideas and get some advice. Uh, our job isn't simply to give cash or say no. We love meeting founders before they're going to be ready necessarily for investment and being able to help them craft whatever it is along the way that, that, that they need help for. I think the, the question that was asked specifically with, you know, around around founder equity and, and how they split it, it, it could be anything. The reality is we see a lot more of this stuff. We see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies that are, a year and founders are dealing with one, you know, we're happy to help and give advice on any of these things along the way. Don't be scared to pick up the phone. Awesome. And actually, Dan, I'm, well, actually, I'll throw to anyone that might have any insights on it, but just because Israel was mentioned in other parts of the world, then this is why I'm thinking of you, Dan. But Kyle Walker's asked, what are your thoughts around emerging longevity industry in Switzerland, UK, US, Israel and Singapore are all building out ecosystems in preparation? Should Australia be doing the same? The short answer, I think, is probably yes. You know, I think this is a, you know, it's a rising issue. The, the countries that these are issues that are clearly going to be growing and coming down the pipe. So, I mean, my short, my short answer is yes. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Longevity industry. I must be. I'm either missing something of the the definition. Who's more familiar with the longevity industry than I? I'm not. I'm not overly familiar with it. Live forever. All right. Cool. This is cool. I like this. Tell me more, Nikki. There are different approaches, um, which are not controversial. Like I think basically one thing is you should take diabetes medicine, even if you don't have diabetes. Um, it lets your cells renew and lets the old cells not accumulate and um, cause problems later. There's all of these different approaches to living longer. And, you know, I think the Silicon Valley TV show episode joke of someone getting a blood transfusion from a younger person, yep. that actually works now that they have some promising. Um, uh, so I think longevity is just different approaches for people to live particularly healthier lives. So even if you live to 100, but if you have 20 years of dementia and Alzheimer's or whatever, that sort of take away those healthy years of your life. Longevity is simply the category of having many more healthy years in your life. Fantastic. And I'll use this opportunity to remind everyone that Nikki is certainly not a doctor and he's not recommending everyone (laughs) take diabetes medicine. Uh, but he's just purely taking from his understanding, nor to drink bleach. I've noticed we've got a couple of minutes left and there's plenty of other questions that come in here. I think when we do wrap up this webinar in a couple of minutes, we'll stay online and we can answer some of those by typing. But we might just throw for, while I throw this one to Jackie, I'll ask Nikki and Dan as well, just have a quick look at Q&A if there's any others they wanted to speak to. But I'll speak to the one that's been upvoted the most here for Jackie particularly. How do you plan to exit your investments? Healthcare tends to have a five to 10 year investment horizon and therefore might not fit 
uh, existing funds and structure mandates. So do you have a, a view on that, Jackie? So our fund, and I think it's going to be very similar to Blackburn and SquarePay, they're kind of seven to 10 years with options for extra. So we are long-term investors in companies. Um, in terms of how do we plan to exit our investments, we tend not to plan how, on how we uh, want to exit them from the very beginning. I think our ideal situation is the company grows quickly, stays private for as long as possible, and eventually exits through an IPO. But I think we see ourselves as minority investors and long-term partners for every startup we invest in. Fantastic. And I will throw to you for one more question that just came up from Merrin, only because she was one of the first 10 uh, guests on the podcast. So, hey, Merrin, I haven't spoke to you for ages. So thanks for the question. It's uh, The question is, how much emphasis would you put on team given it takes money to build a good team? How do you help founders fill the gaps in their team? Right. So there, are, I feel like there are a few different questions in there. I think at the early stage, um, team is really, really important for us. And team really just means the founders at the earliest stage. We put so much emphasis on it because in an ideal situation, if you are great founders, you will be able to hire a great team for cheaper than than the next set of founders along. It's kind of what Nikki was talking about before in terms of ambition. If you're more ambitious and you can sell a big vision to your prospective employees, you should be able to hire them because they're so excited to work with you. And so very often the kind of the very best founders can hire people probably for less than the average. And then I've kind of forgotten the second part of that question now. <laughs> Just generally about team. No, that's good though. That's good. Was there anything, Dan and Nikki, if you have a, a chance to skim over the Q&A of the Zoom, anything else that you wanted to add either to that point, Jackie, was speaking about or anything else that's come up? I just saw Lynette, Lynette's question, which seems to have been, had a few thumbs up around um, how comfortable should we be sharing our idea before we complete our prototype? Some people have shared, you should be careful in case someone runs off with your idea. My answer to that is share as wide as you can. I think the risk of someone stealing your idea and going and running off it pales in comparison to the input and advice and help you're going to get from people around you from being able to build your team, share your ideas, get input, get input from experts, get input from investors. I, I you know, I, my advice is always share as wide as you can, obviously, people you trust. And, and I don't mean trust from a, they're going to steal your idea. I mean, trust that you trust their input uh, and trust their advice. You know, the, the risk of someone stealing your idea is incredibly small. It takes a lot of input to go and turn what it's a an inkling of an idea into a really large business and having people around you that can help you along the way is, is just way more important. Great advice. Thanks. Nikki? If you want to be unlucky in life, you shouldn't tell anyone anything. And if you want to be lucky in life, you should be open. Luck is a process. And unless you give yourself a chance to be lucky, you will never be lucky. And to give yourself a chance to be lucky, you should just be open. And, and I think in the early days, companies have the opposite problem. No one cares versus too many people care and want to steal ideas and so on. And so problem is no one cares, not too many people care. And the best ideas sound stupid at the very beginning anyway, so nobody would want to copy them. <laughs> That's amazing. Look, just going to round it out, I noticed a couple of messages around providing a template for, um, so would the panelists be interested in providing a template to circulate to attendees of health tech startups to use in capital raising rather than... Uh, the startup providing death by PowerPoint. And, you know, there's a, a few shout outs to the MSIA there, Medical Software Industry Association, uh, providing support there too. Emma, thank you for that mention too. Are there any resources then uh, top of mind that are already available out to the panelists that you would point those founders to, those health tech providers to as a template or something? Jackie? We have a resources section on our website at airtree.vc and um, we call it open source VC and, and the idea behind it is that we are making it really easy for founders to understand the process of VC, legal documents in VC, how to pitch us, when to pitch us, how to run a fundraising process, all of these things. So I just head to our website and check there. There should be a, a whole bunch of um, helpful material. 
And Nikki, from your side, is there any other material that you would recommend? I always hesitate with templates because then you look the same as everyone else and we're looking for the opposite of that. We're looking for something unique and fresh. And so it's not a bank loan application. It's, you know, hopefully something that is unique that is going to be the best in the world. And um, so the, the sort of idea of template or even the idea of investment themes are off-putting to me. If you did want templates, uh, I would say Sequoia have a very good, I think they call it business plan, but it sort of offers a great structure to anchor your story around. And then even a lot of the uh, sort of successful companies like Airbnb and so on have published their seed round pitch decks that people can see and learn from as well. So you can just actually search for famous company um, seed round decks to see how other people pitched and got investment in the early days. Awesome. And Dan, any other resources or final comments from your side? Yeah, I mean, I think that the good things to template, you know, things like uh, legal documents and particularly early stage stuff around that, ESOPs and, and all these kind of things that, are, that you know, you shouldn't reinvent the wheel. I agree with Nikki in terms of how you pitch. We want to see how you pitch and, and how you share your vision, not how we would put that upon you. And absolutely, you know, I think anything too scripted, anything too templated, anything too soft standard is just, you, you see it straight away. We want to see raw emotion, um, we want to see why you're invested in this. We want to see why, you know, why you're passionate about this and, and that you just can't get that through a Lego. Perfect. That's a good way to finish up the conversation. I know there are plenty of other good questions that are in the chat there too. So if the panelists do have a couple of minutes to be able to help out responding to some of these by text, that would be good because there's a couple that have been upvoted. Apologies that we won't be able to get to every question in this session. Perhaps we need to do a follow-up one later on. But um, it's been great to get everyone's perspective. Thank you, Jax, Nikki and Dan. And thank you everyone for attending. Just as a reminder, this recording will be available afterwards to check out again and then we'll edit it up so we sound much more professional in audio form and put on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Thank you everyone for attending and thank you very much to the panelists as well. Thanks thank so much, you. Peter. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.